1: Today, we are rejoined by Dr. Jim Nichols to continue our discussion about adaptive harvest management. And and Jim, it's it's again a treat for me to be able to speak with you about this. You have invested all of your career into helping us get smarter, make better decisions about duck harvest management. And, And I hope our listeners realize what a treat it is to be able to hear directly from you about some of the inner workings of adaptive harvest management. It's a component of this enterprise that our waterfowl hunters interact with. It affects them directly, obviously. and. To, to a lot of us, it feels to be somewhat of a black box. And so what I'm, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm confident that we'll be able to demystify some of that a bit. So I just I, I do hope our listeners appreciate the treat that we have and, and being able to speak with you at length. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have at least two. I know we'll have at least two, if not three, and, and who knows, maybe even more of these episodes here with you. So thank you, Jim, for joining us again and being gracious with your time.
2: Thank you. It's a real pleasure for me. And as I said, I really appreciate the opportunity, Mike. Thanks.
1: Yep, absolutely. On the last episode, we left off where we had introduced adaptive management. Uh, you had given us a fantastic definition. We had tried to connect some dots there with how we also use it in some way to learn to make decisions while simultaneously learning about some of our habitat conservation efforts, but uh, also acknowledge that uh, as it relates to duck harvest management, uh, we we have taken it to a much more formalized, um, uh, much more formalized level, and so that. That didn't just happen, you know. That there was a lot of time, a lot of intellectual thought, a lot of capacity, brought uh, that was invested in making that happen. So that's where I want to pick up uh, today. Is have you start by telling us, like, who was, who were the people that were were responsible? For fleshing all of this out, uh, I think there were some technical groups, maybe task forces and working groups that were involved in it. Tell us a little, a little about that. I'm going to assume that you were a key figure in some of those, right?
2: I don't know if I'd say key, but I was. I was involved in it. I can, to the best of my memory, I can talk about it for sure. Adaptive management was sort of developed um, by a couple of folks at uh, University of British Columbia, of all things. Uh, guy named Buzz Holling and his uh, student named Carl Walters. They're both really smart guys and came up with this, uh, this idea of how to manage in the face of uncertainty. Uh, it so happened the two management areas that they worked in were forestry for Buzz Holling and fisheries for, uh, for Carl Walters, but still they, um, they developed this sort of omnibus, this program for working in the case of uncertainty, um, re- regardless of what sort of management problem you had. Um, so when I came to uh, to work first in the you know, 1976 and was all these data were laid out and was asked to uh, build models that talked about the effect of harvest regulations on, on mallards, for example, and came to the realization that just having a lot of data didn't necessarily get you to that answer, um, I was struggling and kind of looking around, thinking about things to do. Now, as somebody who just gotten out of graduate school, you naturally think of experimental stuff. But of course, experimenting with things like harvest regulations are a lot um, easier to think about than it is to actually accomplish because there are a whole lot of other things um, that people are concerned about with those in addition to just learning stuff. In other words, learning was not the only objective by, by a darn long shot, and, and that's very sensible. So I started reading a little bit of this stuff by uh, Walters and Holling on adaptive management. It made a lot of sense to me. And the part that really made sense to me was this idea of simultaneously um, learning while you were trying to make smart decisions and manage. In other words, there would be you know one sort of school of thought. And in fact, Aldo Leopold actually uh, talked about this uh, a long, long time ago was this idea of sort of experimenting um, with systems until you learned how they worked, and then going ahead and using what you would learn to manage them in the future. So it was kind of a two-step process, and, that, and that's real, sem- uh, real um, uh, sensible. But in this particular case, where you had ongoing regulations in a program like this, there was there was no way something like that was going to fly. And so this idea of being able to learn while you were simultaneously managing was one that that made a lot of sense to me. Some people call that the so-called dual control problem. You're trying to do both things at once. So anyway, I started um, writing about it at the ends of papers and discussion sections and things saying, hey, this would be a, a neat way forward. And then that got absolutely nowhere. Nobody paid attention. And so at meetings and things like this, at regulations meetings, I'd start to mention stuff like that more and more um and talk about it and every time i get a soapbox somebody was silly enough to let me talk for a while i'd always mention how um uh trying to implement adaptive management would be a smart thing for us to do with waterfowl regulations and what i came to realize after you know 15 years of that is you can talk yourself blue in the face and it can be as logical sounding as as you want and people wander away shaking their heads and say yeah that's a good idea but there's nothing going to get done unless you have what what we've come or what i've come to call as a champion in other words you have to have somebody involved with that who that is his or her number one thing to do in other words they're interested in implementing uh, a program like this and they have to stick with it from first selling people to the program to then developing it um, from scratch and then actually implementing it through at least a few iterations uh, before anything like this can work. Uh, so anyway, in our case, it was a guy named uh, Fred Johnson. If I if I've got a minute for storytelling, I'll I'll do that here. So what? Um, Fred was a state waterfowl biologist. He goes uh, masters Texas A and M and then went on to uh, to be a duckhead in Florida. Basically, he was on the Lake Okeechobee, and he was roaring around in airboats and catching Florida ducks and ringneck ducks at night, and he was just having a good time. Um, he and he and I collaborated on some stuff while he was a state guy, and then um, Fred became a Fed. Basically, in 1990, Fred made the uh, change and came to uh, the Office of Migratory Bird Management. They recognized him as a kind of an up-and-coming, really bright fellow who was interested in management issues, and so the group there at Patuxent that deals with um, aerial surveys, the banding data, things of this nature, they hired him, and they were very happy with that. So anyway, Fred, I'll, I'll always remember this, it was in 1990, and Fred went to his uh, first regulations meeting, where after all the flyway meetings, you have a regulations meeting in Washington. Uh, in, in Washington, D.C., in the Interior Building, and you meet with various you know, heads of state agencies and stuff, and you come back. Uh, but basically, the formal regulations are sort of developed in those those meetings. Now, a lot of the time, uh, a lot of the background work occurs beforehand, but basically that's when it's uh, sort of legally happens. Anyway, Fred came back from his... Uh, from a couple of days of regs meetings in Washington and sat in my office. And he made the comment, he said, you know, if regulations are still set in this way, by the time I retire, I'm going to view my career as having been a failure. And so anyway, he knew that I babbled about adaptive harvest management a lot. And he started talking to me about it more seriously, as though this is something that ought to be implemented. And I was, you know, as much I, you know, Grabbed my pom poms. I was as much of a cheerleader as I could possibly be, but still, I couldn't help thinking when he walked out of my office, kind of fired up, that uh, this is this is really a shame in a way, because I don't, you know, I'm betting there's a there's a anyway, there's so much inertia, it would be really difficult to get this thing implemented. But by gosh, if he's got the energy, I'll, I'll certainly help. Anyway, he did have the energy, and the sucker made it happen, and he made kind of all the right decisions along the way. So you asked about root working groups and uh, technical groups. So one of the very first things he did was establish a working group just to explore the idea of adaptive management, basically to introduce it to a bunch of folks and then to begin to think about how um, it might be implemented with waterfowl. And so this is not something that came from, from on high. Nobody at a higher level said, Fred, this is something you, you really ought to explore implementing. it." He recognized it himself. And he took it upon himself to develop this group and the group membership was a really big deal he dragged some of us in from you know i was a research guy that was involved ken williams was a guy who was involved in research as well and he made some key um sort of uh, invitations to state management guys you mentioned dale humber dale was one jim Ringelman who became a DU guy, was one from Colorado, a guy named Jeff Lawrence from Minnesota. I ought to remember more of them than I do. But the the point is he um, was interested in sort of open-minded state representatives to come and listen to these ideas. He didn't want yes men at all, but he wanted people who would at least pay attention to ideas and consider them carefully. Um, And then we had... um, Dale Caswell from the uh, Canadian Wildlife Services representative as well. And so, anyway, the working groups, um, my recollection is Fred got them together about twice a year, uh, starting in 1990, I think, um, and with the idea of trying to prepare um, sort of a blueprint for a program, an adaptive management program that might work. Um, We developed to the point where we um, actually came up with something that we thought would be um, useful as a proposal by uh, 1993. And in 1993, um, so Fred published a paper in a special session in the North American um, Wildlife Conference on it, Natural Resources and Wildlife Conference, um, dealing with how we, sort of a summary of all the things that had gone on in the working group is, 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 uh, sort of recommending how we might approach an adaptive management program for the harvest of waterfowl. And then we had this meeting in um, South Carolina. Uh, Tommy Strange was a a waterfowl biologist in South Carolina, hosted an old plantation there. But the interesting thing about the meeting was it was designed to basically roll out this idea to a broader group. And again, there wasn't any sort of buy-in by Fish and Wildlife Service by by anybody. It was just Fred and his working group. It was at least uh, the meeting was designed to see if some other folks who thought hard about ducks and waterfowl and who were also smart folks would buy into it or if they would just say, "Nah, this is really stupid. Just go home and uh, you, know, you, you kind of shouldn't have been doing this. So anyway, that meeting occurred and two of the key people, um, I'm trying to remember if there was anybody else. But David R. Anderson, who was uh, one of the, certainly one of the pioneers of just about every aspect of modern-day uh, waterfowl management we can think of, he was asked to render a judgment about this, uh, about the potential for the program. And so it was Doug Johnson. Both those fellows were, you know, came all the Leopold Award winners. I mean, they're really smart fellows, but who had not been involved in the development of the process itself. And so, what we did is we had prepared that we meaning just members of this working group had prepared this report, given the report to uh to Doug and David and to all the other people who were invited to this uh to this working uh, to this sort of larger rollout group uh we made our presentations and then at the end um David and Doug Johnson and I think some other folks as well made their presentations about what they thought of the program and um luckily we they they highly endorsed it they thought it made sense and it was absolutely worth trying they they didn't they weren't at all certain that it would you know that fish and wildlife service could be talked into it but they they liked the idea so we ended up being very pleased with that what's that
1: so the reaction was favorable there what were the what were the next steps um after that what what happened then
2: Okay, so so now we had this program, and we had a lot of the folks in the waterfowl community that we really respected who thought it might be a good idea to consider implementing this. Um, but having an idea like that um, and actually getting uh, a large agency, such as the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, to actually adopt it or to do very different things. And so basically, this idea sort of, we continued to develop it, the working group Fred continued to um, have the working group meet over the next couple of years, um, but it, it wasn't implemented. And then in 1994, the hunting the hunting season in 1994-95, one particular state um, did an end run around the normal regulations process and got some. I think it was days added to their season at the uh, at, at the end of the uh, end of the hunting season, <clears throat> and as you can imagine, there were a a lot of um, um, states, fact, um, about 48 of them probably, that wrote to the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service being upset about this. And to the point where the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service was looking for anything possible that she could use to um, as a new way of setting harvest regulations where this kind of thing could be avoided. And so what happened is, because we had this approach and we're ready to... Uh, um, to roll it out, um, there was a special sort of a one-day session with Molly Beatty, who is the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service at that time. And Ken Williams and I, who were members of this uh, this working group that Fred Johnson had put together, actually made a presentation to uh, Molly Beatty and some other key people associated with the uh, international uh, Fish and Wildlife folks and. Anyway, made a presentation, and I think if we would have said, if we would have talked about anything at all, I, I think I could have spoken in another language that she didn't understand, and as long as at the end we said this was an approach that was objective, it's transparent, and it's scientific, and it's defensible, I, I think she would have said, yeah. Anyway, she uh, once again, she she did accept it and said, yes, this is the way we're going to go forward um, with the next regulation cycle. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and implement a program that gets rid of this ability of a state to make an end run and do things completely for political reasons. And so in a sense, I think we just got lucky. And because of this occurrence, um, it created this, um, um, this will, this interest of the Fish and Wildlife Service in doing something that was, it was not only different but more defensible and objective, and so in that case, we got got really lucky by this uh, by this by this sort of snafu in the regular process.
1: So, Jim, just to to remind our our listeners, this idea of the federal government saying this is the way we're going to do this going forward. This, you know, we, we talk a lot about the states and the federal government collaborating in the harvest management setting process, but at the end of the day the legislative authority and responsibility for the management of migratory birds falls with the US Fish and Wildlife Service. We've talked about that from the very beginning with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and we you know that the states obviously have a vest, vested interest in this resource. They're a critical part of this, but the the, as the that meeting that you spoke about was essentially the Fish and Wildlife Service again, the agency with the legislative responsibility to manage this resource saying this sounds like a better approach. It will help us avoid some of these problems that we've experienced here this year. And so, this is the, the federal government decided that's this is the way we're going to do the uh, way we're going to do it. Now, that's not to say that the the interest of the state and the buy-in of the states was was discounted. That certainly wasn't the case because you talked about having some state representatives, some state agency representatives on this working group. And so, you realized from an early uh, from the very beginning that it needed to be. Uh, sort of a collaborative approach, but at the end of the day, that decision on whether to use AHM as the process by which regulations was set uh, rested with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, correct?
2: Yes, that's correct. But your your point was an excellent one. I was a little bit uh, facetious there, trying to be a wise guy, when I said uh, all we had to do was say it was objective and transparent. The fact that we had had these meetings, in other words, the fact that the working group consisted of key State representatives from every single flyway, and the fact that we had undergone this meeting in South Carolina, where we rolled it out to a larger group. That absolutely the key audience there was state folks, and then smart other folks who knew a lot about duck populations. Those were very, very relevant. I'm sure in her decision to go ahead and implement this, they they weren't being uh, being ignored. Which that was that was very important. This was not a um, sort of a monolithic thing that was just done by the fish and wildlife service without that state buy-in. I don't think, uh, well, number one, we wouldn't have proposed it, but number two, I don't think it would.
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlansport.com. You
2: would have been accepted. You're right.
1: Jim, I think at this point we can step into some of the individual components of AHM. I, to, as I introduced here, we want to we want to demystify it to some extent. I, I think this this discussion of how it came about, the involvement of the state and federal uh, agencies collaboratively in investigating and presenting uh, this this idea, uh, is to me it's fascinating. I get to learn about some of this, but here in just uh, here in just a minute, because I did think of one other. Of th- one other question I wanted to ask you here in just a minute. We're going to begin to step into some of the individual components of adaptive harvest management. Let me ask you this question: Were you, you talked about Fred as being uh, probably the lead champion for this effort? Were you involved uh, in? Were Were you involved much in presenting? this, uh, this new idea to the state, uh, state agency partners or any other individuals or, or, groups, uh, whether it be at flyway meetings or any other, any other groups? And, and if so, what was, you know, what was their reaction?
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Fred was the, uh, the, the champion, the leader of this whole thing. No, any question about that, but yeah, I had a role in that. And in fact, that's my, my recollection is that the, um, the, that I went to a couple of them. Basically, you know, we had folks from that working group who were designated to make presentations about the full adaptive management program at each one of the flyway meetings. And my recollection was I went to a couple of them, um, that, uh, the first or second year after we, uh, after they were adopted for, for exactly that reason. And in no case was I the only person there, but I was all, uh, there was usually two or three of us. And once again, the ideas hadn't been completely, um, they weren't completely new to folks at the, um, flyway, um, meetings. Because as we said, we'd had in this working group representatives from each flyway. And in fact, they were making these sort of periodic, um, um, you know, at every flyway meeting, they'd make a, sort of a presentation about the progress and sort of the stuff that was going along. That's another thing Fred did was just remarkable. There's no way I'd have been smart enough to do this. But he had uh, somebody associated with communications, a guy named Dave Case, who, um, um, well, he had a group who was specifically involved in communications for natural resources issues. And Fred involved him, was smart enough to do that right from the very beginning. And so Dave was another person who would spread himself around or have folks be sure that they were involved in communicating these ideas um, at the flyway meetings and elsewhere as well. So communication was a big deal. I wouldn't have been smart enough to think of it, but Fred uh, absolutely had that um, in his head from the beginning.
1: Well, thanks, Jim. But this time, I I think we will start to to delve into what I'm calling them here some of the fundamental components and premises of adaptive harvest management, as is specific to this conversation. You, you talked earlier about uncertainty in how that's that's sort of a it's a pretty key aspect of this us not knowing with with. Uh, 100% confidence, how the system operates and how it responds to decisions that we make, harvest management decisions being the uh, the example here. We won't touch on that too much more at this time, but what I do want to spend some time on is talking about the objective. We've introduced this already, the idea that if you're going to make a smart decision, you have to be pretty clear about the objective that you're trying to achieve. And that's sort of fundamental to um, to this. So, talk a bit about the objective uh, either as it operates within within this management context or specifically with regard to what was ultimately chosen in those early days as the objective for harvest management that ultimately drove this AHM process?
2: Okay, well first I'd I like to emphasize sort of your general point about uh, in, in general why objectives are a big deal and they, they really really are. And so uh, my claim would be in any decision process, basically everything is driven by the objectives. In other words, all the other components that will that we'll go through sort of the different actions you can take, the models of the system, the monitoring and, and the, some kind of decision algorithm, all those things are dependent on what you set up as your objectives. And indeed, that should make sense. I mean, how, how can you tell if you're doing a good job or not? if you can't measure it against some stated objective that you're trying to achieve. I mean, that's the whole basis for management. So setting objectives is a big deal, point one. Um, point two, it's interesting to me that, um, in, in that sometimes, you, well, anyway, there's a subset of people who will say, well, the objectives ought to be driven by the science, right? Uh, in fact, even with it reminds me of with COVID today, um, people will al- often talk about decisions being driven by the science. And it, that's not really true. Um, decisions should be driven by objectives and objectives are not dictated to you by science. In other words, they're things that are part of human values, your, your values, what you value, what I value, and are placing those in uh, coming up with with some sort of thing that we're trying to achieve that seems important to us. And so they're absolutely not driven by science. Now, the actions that you take and the stuff that sort of follows can be driven by science, but the objective is something that comes out of our human values and and our minds and what it is that we yeah that we value. Okay, so for the adaptive harvest management, um, this was one of the things that I recall a lot of different discussion about the uh, about what objectives ought to be in the harvest man- in the um, initial working group. In fact, in particular, I remember uh, Jim Ringelman, uh, who was a state representative from Colorado at that time, and as I said later, became of course a DU guy. Um, he we were all very interested in hunter satisfaction. In other words, there was absolutely this idea that bird populations had to do well and do well into the indefinite future, um, that we didn't want to harm them. But there were also, there was very much attention uh, paid to uh, hunter satisfaction and what hunters might, might appreciate as well. And I remember one of our cases when we were talking about, uh, or one of our sessions, we were talking about objectives. And I remember Jim went back and he said, well, and some of us were advocating that we look at sort of long-term harvest, number of ducks shot, something as simple as that as an objective. And Jim said, well, wait a minute, it's got to be more than that. It's got to have to do with hunter satisfaction. So let me go back. And and indeed, he went back and did, did a lot of homework. He sent out a questionnaire to a lot of hunters and got some real good ideas about what it is that hunters valued and what they didn't. But his bottom line was that actually Harvest was probably a pretty good surrogate for those things that hunters cared about. It wasn't all they cared about by a long shot, but he thought it was a good surrogate for that and um, recommended that we go ahead and proceed with it. But anyway, what what came then out of these meetings where there was an awful lot of talk about objectives and a lot of discussion, um, and ultimately what it was decided is that we um, would look at harvested ducks over a long-term, and in our case, sort of infinite forever and ever, time horizon. Now, why would we say it like that? Well, if you say that I'm going to go ahead and I want to harvest as many ducks as I can and I want to do it over a 10-year period then what do you do on that last year? You kill every last duck you possibly can because you don't care about the next year. In other words, so by putting it on a long-term time horizon, it not only values harvest, it not only values the things that hunters were interested in, but it also says that every single year, I want to maintain a a duck population that allows um, that next group of hunters in the next year to also have some success. And so basically, the objectives that was used for the program was to maximize harvest over an infinite time horizon, is the way we uh, we phrased it, meaning you always were leaving enough ducks so uh, the duck population was not in trouble. And then there was also, um, because there had been um, sort of some goals, if you will, about what nice waterfowl populations would look like um, that had been developed um, by folks who had developed the waterfowl management plan, a bit North American waterfowl management plan, uh, a few years prior to the establishment of AHM. There was the adaptive harvest management. There was this idea that maybe we ought to take into account their goals as well. And so there was something built in to that maximize harvest that said, well, we're going to devalue harvest. Um, when it comes to years when projected population size next year is lower than the goal that was expressed in the North American waterfowl management plan. And so, again, the the sort of main goal was maximize harvest, but with this caveat that when it got, when waterfowl numbers got below what we sort of thought we we would like to see, um, then we were going to devalue harvest, um, thereby trying to make regulations a little more conservative. When that happened, so and there have been arguments through the years about the, the whether or not that was a smarter, relevant thing to do. But nevertheless, that that's sort of the way it uh, the way things shook out.
1: With that discussion about our objectives, let's talk now about one of the other really important aspects of this. And and I believe this is referred to as a set of regulatory alternatives. We think of it as sort of the regulatory package, whether it be closed, restrictive, moderate, or liberal. Talk to us about those. What's the importance of having uh, regulatory alternatives in an adaptive management uh, system and specific to this AHM?
2: Sure. Well, if you think of any decision process, basically, what what is the decision and what's the outcome of the decision? It's basically, um, I want to know what action is smartest for me to take at this particular point in time. And so uh, that naturally means that you ought to have multiple actions. And the whole objective of the entire process is to select that action Um, from the alternatives that you have, that ends up getting you closest towards proceeding toward the objective that you've set. And we've we've already talked about what that is. And so in this case, all we had to do was say something about the different kinds of things that uh, different kinds of actions that could be taken. Now, when you talk about harvested systems, often your mind goes straight to harvest rates. In other words, I could say, well, Let's say we have a hunting season that takes maybe uh, 10% of the adult male mallards, or it takes only 5% of the of, uh, of a particular age sex class. Um, you know, we can make statements like that, but in reality, what kind of thing does the Fish and Wildlife Service do? Well, it can't specify an exact fraction, an exact harvest rate, an exact proportion of uh, birds that start out to fall flight that end up being shot you can't do that. What you have at your disposal is the hunting regulations. And so basically these were four. What we did was select um, four different regulatory packages where basically each regulatory package was simply defined by two key elements. Um, One was season length and one was bag limit. And the idea was here a fair amount of Thought was uh, in uh, discussion was devoted to this, but not not nearly as much as to the objectives, because the idea was just to look at times in the past. Right? So there was a, it didn't have to be this way. But folks looked historically in at very um, sort of lean years for ducks and very very good years. Looked at regulations that were established during those times, and just based sort of packages then the the uh, four different packages on. Things that had been done historically when times were really, really good, really, really bad and somewhere in the middle. And so what came about then were these regulatory packages, which actually included a closed season. And there's been a lot of talk about the degree to which that was a, a smarter, dumb thing to do. It, we've never approached it. So that's that's the good news. But that was uh, indeed incorporated into the, I believe, into the original set. And then the three that we expected to have have the most that we expected to really be choosing among all the time, were a set of fairly liberal um, regulations, a set of uh, uh, moderate regulations, and a set of fairly restrictive regulations. And again, they were restrictive and liberal with respect to those two key elements, seasonal length and bag limits. And we did so retaining, just for historical reasons, not for other additional analysis or science-based reasons, but other than the science that that led to the history, but we retained kind of the differences among the flyways that we've seen, that we've been um, sort of using in the past. So in other words, each one of the flyways, Pacific, um, Central, Mississippi, and Atlantic, each had a, when you talked about liberal regulations, they were slightly different in each one of those, consistent with sort of the way past regulations had been. But but that was the idea was to just have those um, main, mainly three different packages.
1: Jim, with respect to the the season length and bag limit combinations that that make up these regulatory packages, the restrictive, moderate, and liberal, what was the what was the analysis? What type of analysis was conducted, or what type of analytical work was done to say, these are the season length and bag limit combinations that we want to assign to these different, uh, to these different packages. You, you talked a bit about how some of it was based in part on past experience, but what other type of analytical uh, work was done to support those? So the, the
2: past experience was important in the sense that they were sets of regulations with which we'd had experience. And because we had experience, we could go back and actually ask Questions empirically. In other words, we could say, okay, with this particular set of regulations, there were several different years that we applied it. Now let's look and look at what harvest rates were. What what fraction of birds that start out the fall flight end up being shot by hunters in years with those that set of regulations? And we'd have several years to look at. And we had those for these three different um, classes, if you will, for the um, uh, for the liberal, for the restrictive, and for the moderate. And that was a a, the harvest rates that were produced were number one. They were within our experience. We'd seen those before, and and number two, they covered a range that seemed sensible to us. In other words, we the liberal um, regulatory packages were producing harvest rates that we didn't want to. That just um, we we didn't want to go too much beyond those. In other words, they were they were sensible endpoints, and so. Um, we ended up using those. And the other thing to say is that um, rather than just saying, well, let's pick the number of days in the uh, the season or let's pick a bag limit and allow those things to vary almost continuously as opposed to having, um, in this case, three or four packages. Once again, we thought this enhanced our ability to learn in the sense that we would have the ability to see multiple realizations of what happened with each one of these regulatory packages, um, thereby gaining the experience with the harvest rates that actually came from them. In um, viewing that kind of learning is, is sort of useful to, to proceeding with uh, managing a smart one in the future.
1: Jim, that's probably a good place for us to wrap up. We still have a lot to cover uh, and we'll ask you to come back and join us on another episode. So thank you, Jim. We'll catch you on the next episode.
2: Thanks very much, Mike.
1: Special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Jim Nichols. We greatly appreciate his expertise on adaptive harvest management and making us all smarter in that regard. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, our digital warrior, for all the work that he does on this podcast. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your support of the podcast. Thank you for spending your time with us. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.